This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice. What's amazing about being in New York also, like since I moved like from the Philippines and being in New York is like, like we're international here. Very much. So it's like all the food are, all great foods are in New York for me. You could never have predicted that a journey that started in a family business of waffles and comfort food would end up in a world of high-end food and dining. But that's exactly where Numa Toison is. This Philippine-born chef, who is French-trained by top masters, created and owns a prestigious boutique New York catering company, Numa New York. And she's become one of New York's highly respected caterers, both on the ground and in the air. She's an entrepreneur who's entirely self-made, who comes from a joyful family wherein everyone was involved with food. Coming up, you'll hear how Numa's seasonal artistry with masterful presentations has resulted in a thriving catering company with a prestigious list of clients, which has even included Hillary Clinton. About her accomplishment of growing from a 20-square-foot kitchen to a 2,500-square-foot kitchen in less than five years. And this is a first. Numa prepares a decadent Philippine dessert that appears to sit on a cloud. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Numa, thank you so much for coming to be with me today. I've been looking forward to meeting you so much. You are a chef, a caterer. You have a very prestigious catering company. The name of the company is Numa New York. Your name is Numa Toison, and you are originally from the Philippines. And the show is One Woman Kitchen because I am so interested, and I know everyone listening is so interested in hearing amazing women's stories, especially when it comes to food and cooking and the culinary arts. So I knew you grew up in the Philippines, and I would just love to take you back to your childhood kitchen. So who's there? What does it look like? Where are we? Tell me about your childhood kitchen. Well, thank you, Roseanne, for having me here. It's a pleasure. I was born in the Philippines, and when I was young, my grandmother and my aunt is a big influence of my cooking. Every Sunday, I remember going to the market, and they'll show me what's the freshest fish, the freshest vegetable, and they explain to me why and what to look for. So I started there, as I remember, as like, as early as four years old. Mm, nice. So over the years, everyone cooks in my family, from my father, my brother, my uncles, my grandfather, everyone cooks. Really? That's Everybody unusual. I cooks. think I've never actually heard anyone say yes. that. Interesting. I have five siblings. All of us has our own specialty. Wow. Yes. So I remember when I was younger, during um, morning, like... If I wanted eggs, I will go in the backyard and get some warm eggs from the chicken hen. <laughs> so I'll take that and make the eggs. And during like, if they, if you want some chicken, if the, the family wanted chicken, we have some chicken outside, mm -hmm. and we also have to take the chicken from the you know from the the from the garden. 
And I used to love taking the chicken yes. and slaughter them myself at the really? at a very, very young age. <laughs> because this was normal. This was this what is people very normal. did in the Philippines. This and, is what uh, we do. You know, it's so funny because now we're rediscovering that, you know, uh, the pleasures and the importance of really being connected to, you know, what we eat and take some responsibility and have some agency in that process. Yes. But I have not had that experience. So so tell me more. So you would act, would you wring the neck or you would so, actually? So, wait, mm-hmm. so you have to have a big boiling water mm-hmm. and you take their hair from their neck mm-hmm like a little bit so you could slice it and you have to drain the blood in a little bowl. Yes. And then you just let them go and then maybe after five minutes Mm -hmm. they're out and then you just dip it in a boiling water and you take the feathers feathers out Mm -hmm. and clean the inside. But the cleaning inside, I wasn't doing that. That was not, like, I couldn't do it. But the whole, pretty much the whole process, you know, I, I love watching it. Because it felt so pure and natural yes. for you. Yes. So it was, you know, and I, I always, like, remember vividly, like, the whole process of it. Mm. And what would you have for your meals? Were there certain dishes that were, you know, essential to part of your family's kitchen and, or comfort foods? I know there's one dish called chicken adobo, which is yes. done with vinegar and peppercorns. Yeah, and- everyone there, they have that almost uh, twice a week. But really, it's my grandmother's cooking that I'm longing for. Ah, well, first of all, what is her name? Louisa. Louisa. And tell me why you feel this way. So my grandmother and my aunt, they're just incredible cooks. They really, like, show, like, their passion about food. Mm. Um, I don't know. They were just really different. I mean, and the taste of the, the food was really incredible. Like, it really tastes what it's supposed to taste. Well, what were some of the influences? Because you mentioned that there was some Spanish influence in your family, some Chinese influence, but the food that your grandmother and aunt were cooking was traditional Philippine or? Most of it, yes. It's traditional Filipino food. But a lot of it that they done also, it's very, I find like now, I, I don't think they realize that. It was very seasonal, a lot of it. Well, you know, that's so funny. We're coming back to that, too, the idea of cooking in season, eating from your own zip code, you know, everything locavore. Well, this is the way it always was because there was no other possibility, right? If you wanted to eat, uh, you grew your own food or, you know, you ate within, you know, 100 yards from from your house. And, of course, you ate in season because that's the way things grew. Yeah. Yes. So they were early locavores. Yes. And I only realized this, obviously, when I moved here and I you know, was in the cooking business and restaurant business, I've already realized that this is what exactly what they were doing. And this is how I grew up. So it was very natural for me to go to the farm to understand what's fresh and to look for what's fresh. And that's the the ingredients that I use now. Well, when you were a little girl doing that, you know, slaughtering the chickens and taking the feathers out and cooking with your grandmother and aunt, did you have any sense at all that you might wind up doing this professionally? In fact, did women in the Philippines cook professionally when you were growing up? Well, most women in the Philippines cook. But, but at home or at home or in restaurants? Was at that home. Just at home. But also, I grew up in a restaurant business. Ah. My family had a restaurant, in, so it was very natural for me, yes. It was like I grew up in a restaurant business. And that was in the Philippines? Yes. And what kind of, what kind of restaurant did your family have? My family had waffles. 
and they like waffles with hot dogs or cheese or bacon. And then we have spaghetti, burger. It was like a quick like fast casual, um, yes, would you fast, say? Yes, one of the first yes, fast yes, casual restaurants? Yes. <laughs> what was the name? Uh, Grace. It was named after my aunt. Grace. Yes. Uh-huh. And, um, and did you used to work in the restaurant when you were growing up? No, it's too little. I was just there looking. I This is what, like, I always look at everyone, what they're doing. Mm, curious And, like, kid. always, like, whatever <laughs> it is, I'm looking and watching. Mm. I remember when I was, I think, seven years old. Six, seven years old, I really wanted to make brownies. Ah, because they were very American or because you I don't saw know, someone was just make some, them? Or? I think maybe somebody made them. And uh-huh. so I start making brownies. Mm. And I used to make a pop. They call it ice candy. It's made of water mm-hmm. and whatever. Like you could make it with chocolate. You could make it with coconut. Mm. And then so I start making that during the summer because summertime, like I have nothing to do. So I'll make that and try to sell it. Oh, so that would be like an American kid having a lemonade stand. Yes, but so it's you made frozen. Ice, you made ice, uh, ice candy. Did you yes. say it was no, called? no. What? I love the name. So let's let's yeah, stick with ice, that. Yeah, uh, ice candy. Shaved yes. ice, or was it? There are in like little plastic, long mm-hmm. plastic, and I fill them up and I tie them and freeze them like popsicles. Yeah, like popsicles okay. exactly. Yeah, so, so I used it was to sell them popsicle and, ice candy uh, business. And brownies. And brownies. But this is like when I was six, seven years old, and that's when I started. (laughs) That's really a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful story. And then you came with your family to the United States, or what was So my mother's a nurse, and Mm -hmm. she was here since 1972. So she went here ahead. She had five kids, and so she came here, and um, we came here after like 1982, so fast we followed her yeah. and followed your mom, of course. Yeah. So fast forward, uh, your resume is really impressive for um, a woman uh, from really an- another country coming here and pretty quickly working for very famous chefs. So I'm also hearing that you have great curiosity and you look at everyone around you. But my feeling is when you were growing up and you saw all of your aunts and grandmothers and uncles and everyone cooking, that it was really associated with a lot of joy. Yes. Yes. It was I'm, very, I'm just really great feeling memories. that from you. Yes. Yes. So I know that you went to France when you were 20 years old to intern for a very, very famous uh, French chef. He's beloved and incredibly uh, renowned, Pierre Hermé. So this was like a big deal for you to be doing this at, at 20. How did that happen? So that was a pretty incredible experience. So I had a boyfriend and he was French. <laughs> okay. So he asked me to go visit in France. And um, so I did. And I loved it. And he, he asked me to stay there. And I stayed in Ile Saint-Louis with him. Mm. And then um, he's like, you know, you got to get a job. You got to get a job. And then, I don't know, one day he just came back and said, you know, I got an intern in Fouchon. Oh, at, oh, at Fauchon, the yeah. amazing French um, kind of gourmet food the Gourmet store. food, yes. Yeah. I said, really? So I started there and I interned there. So it was really amazing experience. And I didn't know any one word of French at all. Wow. Working there. So, I, you know, I had a little, like, became friends with a couple people there. All I remember, like, the greatest experience of all this pastry that... 
Monsieur Hermé made, and it was really incredible. So high-end, so fine, so refined. Yes. Very refined. Even until these days, no one can compare mm-hmm. what he does. I think most people would agree. No one. <laughs> so, you know, when so it's very funny. When Macaroon came in in New York City, yes. when was that, 10 years ago? Yeah, I don't, you know, it's funny, Macaroon, uh, yeah. people love them, and they come in different colors and yeah. different fillings and... Um, I believe they really came from Austria originally, right? Yeah. Maybe Austria, France, yes. So, but in when I was in Fushung, they were making them, mm. and it was already hit. So that was like what fifteen years yeah. ago, and then it came here. So for me, it was like, oh, I've I've done that already. It's been around, <laughs> and you know, and it was incredible. So you were learning how to make his pastries uh, and pastries yeah. there. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite was making a financier with seasonal fruits. Oh, nice! So it has the currant and the raspberry and the wild strawberries and oh, that you can only get in France. We don't get those those wonderful little fraise de bois. Fraise de bois, yes, fantastic. So it's how very funny, just, yeah, because. Every time they will ask me to go in the in a walk in, I will go in the walk in to take some fruits, and I will be like, "Oh my god, all these fruits!" And I will start eating a little bit, you know, because it's the only time that I could have some. So I have a little bit, and then I will go outside, and then here, you know, I said, "I'm I'm sure everybody does the same thing just to taste." I'm sure that's true. Um, so that's when you fell in love with the idea of cooking professionally. And when you came back, you started to work for Boulet, the very famous French chef in New York. Yes. Actually, it's before that. Oh. I was in a restaurant business already. I started waitressing at the age of 16 years old. Where was that? Under um, the McNally's. Oh, no kidding. Yes. I didn't know you could waitress when you were 16 years old. Well, Which restaurant was it? That was Canal Bar. Do you remember Canal that? Bar, of course. <laughs> yes, it was a very I was waitressing place. there, not knowing about any type of like waitressing they just they, I don't know they just loved me and they just hired me and I worked there until like it closed I think fantastic yes well you know uh when I read your story and heard so much about you I felt a little bit like a kindred spirit because when I was very young I did some of these same things I was a bartender illegally when I was 16 <laughs> and also waitressed everywhere when I was 19 and then started my own little catering business and that's really what I want to talk about so after you were at Boulet for two years, working with other women in the kitchen, because I understand that David Boulet was very receptive to hiring women, which was not always the case for French chefs. What was your experience there? I didn't really deal that much with David. Mm-hmm. It was really uh, Bill Yosas that was man, you know, our pastry chef that time in Boulet. I did an intern in Boulet for six months. Mm-hmm. And then um, there were a lot of interns there. I see. For some reason, like, Bill really liked me and hired me. And I remember I was the only one that uh, was hired for all the interns. So I was very lucky and grateful for that. And we should mention that Bill Yosis went on to become the White House pastry chef. Yes. Under the Obamas. Yes, Yes, he's a very special man. Very special and incredible man. Well, it's interesting because you've mentioned very modestly that people seem to like you and give you opportunities. But I do think it has to do with what I said before, some beautiful connection between you, food, and joy. And uh, this seems to really emanate from you. And you are the consummate professional because when you walked into my kitchen today, you brought me gorgeous things to eat and drink. So what what are we having today? So you're having a tapioca 
coconut pudding with pandan. So that is my interpreted of a dessert from the Philippines. One of their like favorites in the Philippines was bukok pandan, means it's coconut and pandan. And let's describe what pandan is. I've had it. It's it's a leaf. Um, yes, right. And for would me, would you call it an herb? I mean, what what is what would you call pandan leaves? Well, pandan leaf for me, it's. I think it's a cross of a greens and herb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, the flavor of pandan, it's very floral and a coconut taste for me and also very fragrant. Mm. But it has like a deeper, slightly earthier Earthier, flavor. yes. Wonderful. So you made this gorgeous drink with tapioca pudding. Mm -hmm. But that's like, that's more like my modern way of my tapioca coconut pudding with pandan. Okay, I'm about to have a bite right now. And you brought it and it's still warm. Oh my God. <laughs> this is so good. And I'm really getting the pandan leaf. I've had it only once before and it was when I traveled in Cambodia. And this was a very kind of familiar taste there. And I see it's garnished with Edible flowers, so beautiful, and fresh currants, which you don't see very often. You have uh, red and yellow currants. And, and pink. Else? And pink. Yeah, there's oh three God. colors of currant there. Mm. There's some raspberry there and blueberry. But no fraise de bois because no you can't find them in America. <gasps> mm. It's vegan and gluten-free, this dessert. That's really fascinating because it tastes so... Um, I'll say starchy, right, in a way, right from the tapioca. And so it's not, not dairy. It's yeah, not and dairy, no dairy. Even though it's, it tastes yeah. and looks very, very milky. In fact, our producer said that it looked like it was a cloud, right? Oh, yeah. It was a cloud or pudding. <laughs> Just delicious. Mm. Is this something you ate growing up? Well, we, we have a lot of like tapioca. Mm -hmm. So in, we eat that during snack, after, after uh, a nap. As, oh, that's, that's so specific. Club. That's yes. so nice. So yes. you would have this tapioca as a snack after a nap. Yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. Numa, I can't stop eating this. So up next, you'll hear how Numa got her start in her catering business. Here's a cooking tip to share. I have a blast making flavored cream cheese for breakfast. One day it might be chocolate cream cheese, or honey walnut, or something I call strawberry cheesecake. It's so simple. For the chocolate cream cheese, I make it with eight ounces of cream cheese, one third cup of Nutella, and one tablespoon of confectioner sugar. Mix with an electric mixer, but don't overmix. Chill until ready to use. For the strawberry cheesecake, I take, again, eight ounces of cream cheese and mix with three tablespoons of chunky strawberry preserves. Add one quarter cup of confectioner sugar. Mix with an electric mixer, and again, don't overmix. Chill until ready to use. And for a honey walnut, my favorite, add one half cup coarsely chopped walnuts to eight ounces of cream cheese and stir in three tablespoons of wildflower honey. Mix with an electric mixer, but don't overmix. Enjoy. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Oh, 
Numa, you have done the impossible in many ways because you opened your own catering business uh, four or five years ago in the middle of New York City, in a city that is sophisticated and a city that has lots of caterers. So tell me about your process. What made you want to do it? What steps did you take? But I know it's going well because you have a very prestigious list of, of clients. Thank you. Um, so when my son was only three years old, a friend of mine asked me if I could do some pastry for the family that he works for. And it probably took me a few months to start doing it. And I finally did. And so I sent them all these desserts and they were just really amazed and they wanted to know everything about me. <laughs> so, and I get to meet them and they want to hire me as their pastry chef at their home. Um, so that's what I did. And I start cooking for them and that's how it started. They introduced me for like few people to do um, catering mm. and I start catering like little by little like for 10 people for 12 people and it just becomes more and more and so I said one day and I said one day in like I said 10 years from now I will have this massive kitchen I said to myself so you had a vision of this yes mm -hmm. and because where I where my kitchen is really really tiny I don't know it's probably like four by five mm -hmm. that's it's like really tiny <laughs> So all I wanted, like this big kitchen, and I said, I will get it like 10 years from now, I said. It took me probably 11 years to get the kitchen. Wow. But that's like almost spot on, right? You yes. were really actualizing your dream. So what happened to that was like, you know, I met a lot of people mm -hmm. just doing freelance and people really liked what I was doing. My clients really loved what I was doing. And, and at this just, point, you're not just doing pastry, you're doing everything, everything. savory. I was doing savory yeah. and pastry. Did you teach yourself or also from cooking school, you learned both? So I, when I decided to go to cooking school, mm -hmm. I feel that, when was that? That was 35 years ago. Wow. I went to Peter Kamp, which is now it's ICE. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Um, Very good school. I decided to take pastry and baking because I always find that cooking is very easy for me. Ah, it was very natural for me. I see. So when I when I start doing catering for people, I I did both, and that's how I started. And so people are like, so it become from like ten people to fifty people, and it was just every year it was more and more. And so one day I had lunch with a friend of mine who was working in uh, one of the real estate. Said I said, oh, you know, I'm looking for a kitchen. He says, you never told me that. And I said, well, I'm telling you now. And I said, <laughs> I wanted the kitchen. But I said, but not now. I'm not ready. Mm. I think next year I need. I said, so after a couple hours, he called me. And it's like, Numa, just I send you an email and just look. I found a kitchen for you. I said, really? I said, yeah, just go look and check, check. So I did. And that is the kitchen that I have right now. So, and where, where is that? Where is the kitchen? So the kitchen is in Long Island City. It's mm -hmm. about 2,500 square feet. That's very different than a four by <laughs> yes. five foot kitchen. So I have this massive kitchen now that I, you know, that it probably took me after like three and a half years that it is real. So Numa, up until that time, had you been working totally by yourself? Or did you also have um, kind of sous chefs or other people in your business? So when I open, which is going to be five years by mm -hmm. um, November, I think, September, November, 
I have myself and I have my uh, partner that I've been with for a long time. And and I had one sh- one cook. And wow. that was it. And up until that time you basically worked alone. Yes. And so I have one person that's working with me and every month, every year, it just, you know, and I vision what it is, like what I want, like so I just keep building and building. And that's what I'm doing now. You are like driven for success, but you've done it, you know, but we can't say an overnight sensation. You have worked very hard. Very hard. In turn, you work with some of the great chefs um, and you have a kind of determination, which is really important. What were some of the biggest obstacles over the last couple of years? Being a woman, uh, being in the catering industry, which I think is actually very, uh, very competitive in New York. Very competitive, yes, it is. What were some of the issues? Well, you know, for me, you know, every day it's very challenging. Mm. But I believe in what I'm doing. And I'm very passionate of what I want and my vision of, like, creating a company that I feel that in catering... There is a room to grow in a sense of I wanted to serve a really high-end, like seasonal, honest food. Mm. And I feel that like there's a room for that. Like if you go to a Michelin restaurant, Mm -hmm. and that's the experience that I wanted to give to people. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I think this idea of high-end, I think you have a high-end customer and you're doing honest seasonal food but taking a look at some of the photographs of of the food that you serve it does everything does remind me a little bit of a still life your food is very beautiful and i almost feel that there is some influence of david boulet and pierre hermé uh in in your food in the way that it is um kind of designed but it's not it's not fussy it's just beautiful natural natural <laughs> so I, it's very funny because you know when i create a dish i really start with colors ah i love asking chefs where yes my their inspiration ideas is come always from. colors i start with whatever's in the market let's say today was like all the zucchini and all different shape of zucchini mm. you know the yellow zucchini the summer squash zucchini avocado zucchini mm the color and the the bright color and so that's how i start and like vision that way first and then i and then i start making what dish i want oh, so you're there. an artist clearly and do you have any um kind of global or philippine influences on your menu because it sounds like you've traveled a lot so you're probably influenced by either different cuisines or cultures or maybe or maybe not so i start traveling since i was 17 years old so I would work and save my money. And the first time I did that, I went to Thailand. Mm. So that was really great experience. And over the years, that's what I've been doing. I feel that it was really important for me to travel as much as I can and see the world because of my love of food and culture. Mm-hmm. Traveling so, is the best teacher, truly. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. And that's what exactly what I'm teaching with, from my son that I that is the best thing that you could do for yourself is really to educate yourself by traveling. So I did that for a while. And even like when I was in Morocco, Mm. when I come back, I will make Moroccan food. (laughs) When I was in Japan, 
for like a year, I will make Japanese food. You know, and what's amazing about being in New York also, like since I moved like from the Philippines and being in New York is like, like we're international here. Very much. So it's like all the food are, all great foods are in New York for me. And I think there's really um, a demand for it because people, your customers also travel yes. and are excited by what you're doing. And do you have anything like uh, a Philippine chicken adobo on your menu? Might well, you try that next? Well, you know, if somebody asked me, I I would definitely do it. But my food is more, it is international. Mm-hmm. I have like taco bites there. I have the classic New York pigs in a blanket. Oh, tell me about that. I saw a little photograph. Everyone loves pigs in a blanket, the little hot dogs wrapped in either puff pastry or some other kind of dough. But yours look like jewelry because you have like tiny little strips yes, of pastry. pastry. Okay, tell us about where did that idea come from? And So a lot of my um, clients always ask me, can you make some pigs in a blanket? And for me, pigs in a blanket from the grocery. I was like, oh, really? You want me to make pigs in a blanket? <laughs> I'm like, okay. And then... Maybe like for a few weeks, I kept thinking, how can I make the pigs in a blanket in a better way? And when so, you say better, you mean a little more sophisticated, more sophisticated, or, mm-hmm. and not maybe, so doughy. Maybe. Yeah, maybe lighter. So I created that like a mini bite, obviously like with spiral puff pastry around. Ah. So when you have a bite of that, it's not so doughy and it's balanced. Mm-hmm. So that's how I created. Numas pigs in a blanket. Numas pigs in a blanket. You should sell them. I mean, like you know, frozen. <laughs> Going to another business. Yeah. <laughs> They're really cute. And do you serve that with a special sauce or mustard? And how do you? So that's that's with cornichon, um, ketchup, and mustard on top with chervil. Wow. Okay. Funny about chervil because it is so much a restaurant herb, isn't it? You find yes. it in restaurants and hardly ever at home. Why do you think that is? It's very delicate, maybe, or expensive, or it's not an herb people use at home. No, uh, I because first I think they're hard to grow. I that must be it. And they're in a and it, they're hard to grow and they're a little bit more pricier, I think. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the flavor of chervil? For me, it's like fresh and lemony a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like so a you're little the, anise and lemon. Oh, yeah, I was, yeah. Yes, I was going to say that. I was yeah, kind le- of looking for that as well. So. I think you are also very famous for, we call these dishes the untouchables. What can't you take off your menu? So you're very famous for your little fried chicken bits. Yes. (laughs) I write about that, Numa. (laughs) (laughs) So the fried chicken. So that's one of my clients too that um, loves fried chicken. And what's special about it? So it took me probably a couple years to really make the fried chicken for me and really to get incredible it right. to get it right what the consistency of really crispy but at the same time it's also very light mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are you using a special kind of flour for it or i think it's just the techniques that we've been doing it mm-hmm. so we brine it ah okay and we have a dry rub and then we have buttermilk mm. and then um and then we have our secret Okay, and I'm not going to press you for your secrets. So so we were talking before about some of the challenges in having a catering business. And sometimes you'll cater for 10, and I don't know the largest size parties that you have done, but what is the largest size party? The largest size party that we've done, I think about almost 300. And this was like a sit-down dinner or a cocktail party? Cocktail party. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy 
doing such a big I did, scale but event? Yes, I, I do. But, you know, it's very challenging because every party, there's always something to learn. Always. There's always something that you have to, to do better the next party. But, you know, I always give the best and I look forward to always to have another party. And have you grown? Because you said you started this four or five years ago, like with two two people. Yes. So, you, so your company I, has gotten I, bigger. Yes. So now sometimes I have about 10 people working mm-hmm. at all times in the kitchen. And I have a lot of freelancer. Wonderful. So and my staff is all freelancer for the wait staff and my team also cooks. We have freelancer. And do you find yourself hiring mostly women? Or it just depends? I think it depends. Uh, I started with a lot of women uh, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple women that I'm still friends until now. And um, one of them, we spend a lot of time together. Um, I think I am her mentor until now. And they're not working for me anymore because I feel that they need to grow and go out there and learn. And I always tell them this, we could always come back later on. Mm. Because I feel that when I was working for people, it was hard for me to let, for them to let me go sometimes. And I always feel suffocated. And I always feel like you need to go out there and learn. So it's your chance to learn now and you have to just go. You're a good mother, Numa. (laughs) (laughs) And right, to be a good mother, it's about roots and wings. And uh, sometimes you have to kick them out of the nest. Yes, yes. So, and I think, and one of them became a sous chef. And now she's ready to go to uh, a different level in her life again, which is I'm trying to help her with that. So it's great. Yeah. Wonderful. Coming up, you'll hear more about Numa's philosophy about cooking in the kitchen. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Numa, we want to hear about your philosophy, although we've already been sharing that with you. But what's meaningful to you right now is, is a woman in this industry and growing yourself as you grow your business? Well, first, I, you know, as a woman, to grow my business, um, like I said, it's very challenging every day, but I embrace those challenges every day. And the next day is another day to be better and to polish yourself. Mm. So for me, I just have to focus on what I need to do every single day. And no matter what happens, I always think about what I like to do and what my passion is. So that keeps me pretty much 90% happy. No matter how hard my task every day, all I could think of is like, this is what I love to do. And I'm very grateful, by the way, that I get to do what my passion is. I think it's most, a gift. Yes. It's a gift. And well, some it's a of gift my, you gave yourself. You've yes. worked very hard for this. Mm. Thank you. And some of my client thinks I'm really, really uh, successful. And of course, I say thank you. But I said, there's a long way for me. They said, mm. no, you're not. I said, you are, you do. But you are very successful as a person. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for all the challenges and, and I embrace and, and I just want to be better and try to help. One of the things is try to help 
kids in the Philippines. Ah. That's one of my uh, vision later on uh, to open a small um, cooking school for kids in the Philippines. Wonderful. Specifically women or just young boys and girls in order to give them opportunities they might not have in yes. the food world. Mm-hmm. It's both. But um, when I was younger, the, one of the reasons for that, because I I read a story about in the Philippines, like a lot of them has a really tough childhood of child trafficking or mm. child abuse. So I wanted to give them the opportunity if I can one day. I have no doubt you will be very successful in doing that as well. Have you had any disasters or really challenging situations that were hard to resolve? Because it looks like you're really a problem solver, but can you think of one or two mishaps or things that didn't go so well? Because, you know, that's part of the the industry too, right? Yes. Food. So since like my personality, I'm a little perfectionist, Ah. um, Mm. but things happen. So one day I was doing this wedding, one of important wedding, and um, for some reason I was I was in the kitchen with my chef. I also have another chef now working with me. Good. And um, whoever was in the front that I signed did not do a good job. Mm. So things happen, and I was really heartbroken for maybe almost six months because people makes mistake, and without mistakes you can't be better. But this kind of mistake it was not it was a little bit uh unacceptable mm-hmm. for me because it was a little bit big mistake than what I would you know experience, but right. it was a big lesson mm-hmm. and I really focus on making sure that it will not happen anymore so mm, I'm really feeling this and the fact that you know, perfectionists are usually very hard on themselves. So sometimes it really does take a long time to recover. Yes, that's me. Um, But again, that's how we learn. And uh, I'm sure that it goes pretty perfectly from then on, right? Yes. I mean, every day I work on to have a better service and better of delivering what I need to deliver every single day. Weddings are hard too, right? Because there's so much emotion and uh, expectation. You see, this idea of you know, the most important day of your life, therefore it becomes the most important meal ever, you know, yes. is a, a very heavy burden uh, for uh, for food. I noticed something on your uh, beautiful brochure, something called aviation catering. Can you tell me what that is? So aviation catering. So when I used to work for a prestige uh, family, sometimes they do take me to go away with them, like in Paris, with their private jets. So there's a woman there, um, my, a friend of mine uh, now, Laurence, this French woman that I really adore. She was there waiting for me. She really wanted to meet me. And so I, while well, we were uh, taking off and she like introduced my, herself and I met her and we start talking. And she said, you know, I'm so happy that I get to meet you. You make this amazing food. And I was wondering who was making this amazing food that our clients, you know, take with them when they fly to to Europe. And um, and she convinced me to start catering for aviation. Wow. So that's how we started. So and it's all about just word of mouth, like everybody just like talk about what, what I'm doing and so now about, I have about 35 to 40 people in my list 
for aviation private jets and it's um, remarkable yes and then um who maybe, knew yes yeah, so um, we're actually thinking of extending so it's still in the process to extend to a different level and what are the things you have to think about for that? Just um, portion size or uh, delivery of it? Uh, so how to heat things up? Or yes. What are the challenges? So, you know, for a while, like for maybe for a couple of years, it's really like to package them so they won't, they, so by the time they, they receive, it still look the same mm-hmm. and the heating to, you know, if they have microwave or they have an oven and if there's a flight attendant or not. So it depends on who is going to be in the flight. So this is very, very personalized service because it's a much. little bit different for, for everyone. Yes. What are some of the other goals you have for yourself and for NUMA New York? Since I'm very passionate, I really like what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm, First of all, my catering, you know, I don't have a partner. I build this myself Mm. and my partner. So um, I did it in purpose. There's few people like offered me to invest, but, you know, not because I want or not because I don't need. I just feel that I just wanted to do it myself Mm -hmm. to be able to really experience what my passion is and grow from there. And not to have to answer to, not to anyone, to have I guess. Not to answer from anyone. Really to be in control. Yes. And, and so mm-hmm. that's exactly what I did. But I feel now um, that really my partners is really the people that's working for me. Ah, that's a very wonderful way to think about yes. uh, that as a really, business model. Mm. I really feel strongly that whoever build together with me and one day they will be part of it with what I'm trying to build to expand. That's very inspiring. Thank you for that. Numa, you mentioned that you wanted to expand this idea of aviation catering, which I think is fantastic. But you also had an idea to open a cafe of some kind? Yes. You know, my plan, like in a couple of years, to expand a cafe with prepared food, like an Otolengi style. Mm-hmm. My love for Southeast Asian food and Middle Eastern, I think it will be a great combination. I do too. And what about Philippine cuisine? Do you see that emerging onto the global stage? Is it a, a new a palette that we don't really know too much about? It is kind of like a trend now to have a Filipino f- a restaurant. I think Filipino is great to have, but I also feel that it needs to be li- to have a little bit a lighter version. Mm. For me, it's a little bit more heavy. It's very heavy for me. Right. I do make a little Filipino food, but I do make it lighter. I was going to say, who better than you to do that? And I'm also very curious, um, do you have any role models in the industry, specifically women or women we should know about? I feel it's very funny because for me, because if I say this, people are like, shock, why? You know, I always feel that Martha Stewart, it's a big impact of me because for me, she was like, this woman and she did everything herself also. So I totally respect her and also Oprah. I'm so glad I asked. These are two amazing examples of women trailblazers who just kept on going and reinventing uh, and doing everything at such a high level and making such an impact. We talked a little bit about your legacy recipe, but 
Tell me again, of, of all of the recipes that you've created, you filled the tapioca with the pandan or the pandan syrup is a taste of your childhood. Yes. So in the Philippines, they, you know, I feel strongly to to have the pandan because for me, it was just natural that because that's the aroma that I smell all the time, all the mm. time, because we actually also use that when we make steamed rice. You use the pandan leaves for steamed rice? Yes. And Ooh. you just add the uh, like a couple pandan leaves and that's the smell that that's you the get. smell of the philippines yes. for you yes. or your childhood mm. yeah. so i i use it for syrup for drinks mm. and for desserts and where do you get them in asian market are they fresh or dried um frozen it's frozen but you know even though they're frozen there there there's a lot of flavor in there very special flavor Numa, how do people find you? We want to make sure everyone knows how to spell your name. So it's N-U-H-M-A, Numa, Numa New York, or NumaNYC.com. So it's info mm -hmm. at Numa New York. Or I have an Instagram. It's Numa, N-U-H-M-A, N-Y-C. Wonderful. And are you uh, always posting your gorgeous food on your Instagram? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, almost become, that's almost become a full-time job, too. Yes, it is a full-time job. Yes. yes. You know, this time has gone so quickly, Numa. So I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone. What does one-woman kitchen mean to you? So for me, um, if you ask anyone, and the response will be a memory of a woman in their life in the kitchen, whether for me it's my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, and women have always been in one in the kitchen to nourish the family by cooking. Mm -hmm. And all the memories in, are somehow tied to a woman's cooking. So most people have the same experience. It's always a woman in the kitchen. That's so lovely. Thank you. I'm honored to be here in your podcast. Thank you, Rosanne. Thank you, Numa. And thank you to all of you for listening to me and Numa together and for being together in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice.